Good morning. This morning we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we're continuing to go through this, this flyover of, of uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus by our teaching rotation. Uh, today's verses will be verses 3 through 11. Let's pray. Precious Saint Father, Lord, we pray that you open up this word to us, that you give give me the words to speak, and and here's the, the ears to listen. And Father, we pray that, that you will be glorified most of all throughout this message, or throughout this lesson. And we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy. Yeah. Does everyone have notes? Tim mentioned that. I think we've got extras up here if you need them. 1 um, Timothy, we'll start in verse 3, going through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. Now, we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, slanderers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, does anyone remember what we went over last week? We introduced the book of 1 Timothy, who wrote it, why he wrote it, and the salutation. And at the end of last week, does anyone remember, I'm going to call it an equation that I came up with, if this and this equals this, does anyone remember? Grace, which is the giving of something we don't deserve, plus mercy, which is the restraining of something we do deserve, equals a peace. And if you experience the grace and mercy, you will have peace. And you talk to people who have been saved and their testimonies in this room that when they found Christ, they had a peace. Amen. So, has anyone ever seen or watched a documentary called Super Size Me? And all of you kind of had the same reaction on your face. Uh, some genius decided to make a movie and document what eating McDonald's three times a day for 30 days would be like. Well, spoiler alert, it didn't go well for him. He gained weight, got diabetes, high blood pressure. Uh, 
It seems as if he discovered that if you have a constant diet of garbage, then your body will suffer. Studying and understanding a right theology is very much the same way. If you consume bad theology, then you will begin to build a bad worldview. Remember last week we were talking about building a theology and having a right theology first, then you'll have a right Christian worldview. So uh, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into that. But first, <coughs> let's look at the first, well, verse 3 there. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. I thought this was interesting. It's, once again, Paul doesn't just write words down, just put words on the paper. As I urged you. It certainly sounds like this is a long conversation that Paul had with Timothy. Paul had been commanded by God to, to send people and to do what he was doing. But he urged Timothy. He could have pulled his apostle card. Look, Timothy, I'm an apostle. You need to stay at Ephesus. But he urged him. Paul convinced Timothy to stay where he was. Paul convinced Timothy to stay where he was. Does anyone have any opinions or what they think why Paul didn't just command Timothy to stay? Remember, yeah. Well, is it, I'm just kind of guessing out loud here. Is it possible that he kind of knew Timothy, respected him, and would you know, sometimes, like, you know, let's say your dad says, you know, would you take out the trash? He hasn't worded it like an imperative, but, you know, since you respect your dad, you're going to do it. And you get that he's basically commanding you, but not saying it that way. You know, is it possible that's the sort of thing that's going on? It's just kind of out of, due to the nature of the relationship, he can speak that way, even though in reality it is basically a command. Right, right. And I think a, a lot of it had to do with their relationship. Paul loved Timothy. He loved him as a son. Obviously, he called him a son in the in the salutation, and he wanted to do this lovingly. And uh, as I think, in Paul's wisdom, he knew it had to be Timothy's idea. We do this with our kids sometimes. We do it in business. I know I've talked to Bud about this sometimes. You'll be talking to someone, and they're just like, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. No, it's not." And you start giving them these ideas. And one of the first ideas is something that needs to happen. But as you throw in these, these other things, they're like, you know, I think it might be a good idea if, and then they carry out what you wanted them to do in the first place. You talked them into having an idea <laughs> that was your idea, and that's fine. And it kind of seems like that. Uh, I'm going to mention Matthew Henry a couple times. I like him. His commentaries are wonderful. He's straightforward in saying that Timothy didn't want to get away from sitting under Paul's physical guidance. He wanted to stay right there. And so Matthew Henry said, Timothy had a mind to go with Paul. And he was loath to go from under his wing. But Paul would have it so. It was necessary for the public service. Paul's moving on to Macedonia. 
He doesn't know this, but once again, he's going to be imprisoned, and there he's going to lose his head. So the next uh, part of our passage says, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul has urged Timothy to stay. Why? So you, so you can charge certain persons, and there's a, a twist here. It's not, so you can teach people this, it's so you can so you can charge certain persons not to teach this. There was something being taught that needed to stop. So it sounds like there's some false teachers getting into the church. And uh, I want to go over three quick categories of of uh, preaching that a church can sit sit under. We'll go from best to worst. We have orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. This comes from two word, two root Greek words. Ortho, which means right, true, or straight. You go to an orthodontist, they straighten your teeth. And doxy, which means opinion. So you have a right opinion. Now in today's world, and we talked about some things going on in the world, people go, well, you know, you have your opinion but I have my opinion. And that's true. But there is truth someplace. Okay. Me and Tim can be having a conversation and he can tell me the sky is blue and I can have an opinion that the sky is green and we can go back and forth. But somewhere there's truth and the sky is blue. Okay. Uh, this is orthodoxy. Be careful not to think of Eastern Orthodox. That's a different denomination, and we won't get into all the, all the different things there. But to be teaching orthodox Christianity is to hear uh, Pastor Tim's lesson on the Trinity. The Trinity is an orthodox teaching. The inerrancy of, of the Bible. The virgin birth and the death and resurrection of Christ. This is orthodox teaching that if you see that, okay, they're a good church. Then you have heterodoxy. Heterodoxy. This means a deviation from the orthodox teachings. Hetero means different. Um, you have homosexuality, it's the same sex attraction. Heterosexuals, which you don't hear about very much, <laughs> are the different sexes being attracted to each other. So it's a different teaching than the orthodoxes, heterodoxy. That's when you start straying from the right teachings. There can still be some truth there, but it's starting to get away from it. And then the last one we've heard of, it's heresy. This is teachings opposing Orthodox Christianity. Uh, I had a pastor growing up as a high school student. I said, and you're a pastor? He said, well, you know, the, the miracles are documented in the Bible, but they're just kind of stories to kind of move things along. Now, you're a pastor. That's, you know, 
you're speaking against the Bible. That's heresy. Uh, there's some good uh, benchmarks of if someone's a heretic. If they're on TBN, good chance <laughs> that they're a heretic. Um, if you want to stay away from those books, the teachings, I had a training once, I just thought of this, had a training once that he said, oh, so you're a Christian. I said, yeah, we, I always had a good chance to talk to my trainees about when I was training. And he goes, you know what my favorite pastor is? I said, who's that? He said, Jesse Duplantis. He goes, it's so fun to listen to him. I go, yeah, it's so fun to fall into hell too. It just, you know, you need to watch and be discerning. So if we listen closely to Paul, Listen closely. Paul is instructing Timothy to watch over the teaching in the church and make sure it doesn't stray from what had been taught to them. Ministers must not only be charged to preach the true doctrine of the gospel, but charged to preach no other doctrine. I, I read that. I thought, boy, that's, that's good. It's, you aren't just charged and you are charged. We'll get a little bit later to a pastor is charged for something. But it's not just to preach the right thing, but to make sure you, you don't preach the wrong thing. So yesterday, I brought men into the, to the volunteer class, and Anna, you know, she's, she's in the nursery this morning, but she's a little bit of an introvert. She doesn't, doesn't, you know, she doesn't like crowds, and she said, could you be there? I said, tell you what, I'll bring my laptop, I've already studied this part. I just need to put the words. I had all the thoughts. I need to put the words. So I'll just sit there and type. So I sit there typing. And someone came in and she looked over my shoulder and she saw this next part and she goes, Oh, you're teaching on First Timothy, aren't you? <laughs> and it was nice to see. They saw two words and it was myths and genealogies. But they saw those two words and they knew that that was, that that was, um, what we're be going on. The, so the first one is myths. Um, we uh, see. I like to push up. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. So you have myths. There's a tendency back then to bring Judaism or pagan or paganism into Christianity. In first century Israel, they were very comfortable with Judaism. And of course they grew up in that. And also Greek God worship. And they would try to bring this God worship into the, the teachings. Uh, there are teachings in the Bible that are unpopular in society today, and that's obvious. Paul wanted to wanted Timothy to keep alert of some things being sold as orthodox teachings. Then we have genealogies. In the first century, there were teachings that if you took the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and you went to every fifth letter or every third letter or, or the first letter of each censor, then they would put those onto a piece of paper and build a theology around that. 
Or they would say, you know, if your grandfather, and there was a tendency, and it's easy to get this confused because in Judaism, you had certain tribes that had certain jobs, you know. But uh, just because my grandpa was a Christian doesn't mean I am. And that's one thing they, they would try to say, if you're related to someone, then you would find favor with God. Uh, Gnosticism is a heretical thread that started soon after this. It's around the second century. Gnosis is a common Greek word for knowledge. That sounds like a good thing, but it's a separation of the sovereignty of God. A common part of Gnosticism was that Jesus was an embodiment of a supreme being. <clears throat> Once teachings deviate from the Trinity, it becomes heresy. Yeah. Uh, going back to the genealogy thing, uh, I get questions on this from time to time. Uh, because this isn't the only place in the Bible where God speaks against genealogies, and people have wondered, like, is, is, is it therefore wrong to like find out what country my ancestors came from, and you know, do kind of like genealogical research? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something totally different. Like, like Chris was saying, there was this idea in early Judaism that if I could show that I was, you know, biologically descended from, you know, King Uzzah or something like that, that that made me almost like better than you or something like that, or you know, more likely to go to heaven than you. Uh, that's the kind of thinking we got to reject, that you, know, you might be a direct descendant from you know, Charles Spurgeon, but if you don't know the Lord, that, that is totally insignificant. But don't think that this is criticizing you know, if you want to go find out what country your ancestors came from or anything like that. Go ahead, man. Yeah, I, I think that when you go to Ghana, along the same line, they have these charismatics, uh, I've got this doctrine, they say for instance, that there's something called generational curse, so if your great great grandfather did something, it's in your family. So then you need to come and see a charismatic pastor to bring that you. And those kinds of teachings are very rational, charismatic circles. So I think probably might also fall under the same genealogies. And it's a big thing in, in Ghana, Nigeria, places like that. I know you told me before about how prominent charis uh, charismatics are in in other countries. <clears throat> when the Berlin Wall went down, the next day they had TVN being broadcast in the country. They were ready. They had satellites set up. They had dishes at the border set up. And when when communism failed at that point, they were ready to go in. And wouldn't it be nice if we had evangelical missionaries standing at the wall ready to go in? Um, and I thought you said if someone was Spurgeon's great, 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 I was, Spurgeon would come back and give him tongue thrashing. <laughs> he knew that someone was using his name like that. But it is interesting how for some reason, I think it's almost like innate to think that if I'm biologically descended from somebody that that gives me like special powers or, or something like that. But the Bible knows nothing of that. And especially look at the way Jesus Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. You know, if uh, you know just because you're of Jewish heritage means nothing. You know, if you don't repent, you know, you'll likewise perish. Um, but for some reason we kind of I don't know why it is, but we think that like if my great 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 grandfather was something significant that, that kind of like comes down to me. 
one of the biggest cults in the United States, has a giant library. This will give it away, it's in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> but a giant library full of genealogy. And it's very useful. I've been able to find like, three or four great grandparents going back far enough. And we didn't have any other documentation than this. But the reason they do it is because they can baptize their ancestors into heaven. Yeah. And they, they have three heavens. I just heard some last night. There's three heavens and you can pray someone on up into. It's very strange. But Paul's saying, don't follow the genealogies. Then it says, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God. That is by faith. I would say this is another measuring stick of that teaching, if it's good or not. We even see that today, in most of our hot point subjects that keep coming up, granted, I'm the one who breaks them up. <clears throat> Let's use a quick example of pro life argument. You're having a debate. Um, I don't want to say my name's Jeff Durbin or something. I'm standing in front of uh, an abortion clinic and I'm, I have seen these. I use his name because. He, he has a very large ministry outside abortion clinics. And he'll say, he'll say, life begins at conception. And the first thing they'll say, well, what about rape and incest? What about rape and incest? You're asking a question. You're raising speculations. So practice, preaching and teaching should be focused more on faith in God and less in questioning orthodox teaching. You don't bring up questions against it. You want to challenge teachings, but not just out and out question out of unbelief. And I think Tim may have a question. You look troubled by that. Oh, uh, well. No, it's okay. I mean, I think I agree with what you're saying, but I do think that probably in context, the speculation has to do more with the myths and the genealogies. I mean, obviously we don't want to just continue to play the devil's advocate and bring up, you know, objections to orthodox teaching. Um, and I probably wouldn't have said this had you not called on me, but uh, it does seem like probably the speculation is speculating about these myths, like what did, you know, Abraham do, you know, while he was hanging out in Haran, that's beyond the Bible or something like that. Or, you know, again, the genealogy is what may my great-great-grandfather have done spiritually to influence me. Um, so that's why you're okay. seeing something on my face, but uh, it's probably not something I would have brought up. Oh, no, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I like being challenged. I like, I, if you don't like being challenged, you better not be standing in front of the classroom. Um, does anyone else have anything else over right here? Okay, the first time I, I stood up here, Pastor Tim sends out an email. He goes, Chris did a good job. He just didn't give any opportunities to, to, for people to, to add anything. And so then I asked Bennett last week, I go, so what? I, I said, I'm open to criticism. I said, hit me. He said, you didn't give us any time to say anything. I go, okay, so I have lines drawn through my nose here to remind me to say something. Because I get, I get on a run. So the next next part of part of our passage, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The purpose of sound doctrine 
is to produce love in Christian living. The purpose of sound doctrine is to produce love in Christian living. Last week I talked about forming our worldview around our theology. This points more directly to that idea. This verse says directly that the point of the reason to have a Christian worldview I read that wrong. This verse says directly that the point of the reason to have a Christian worldview is saying specifically that Christians should have a love that has an origin of three things. I butchered the grammar on that, but we'll get into it. Pure heart. The first thing it says is a pure heart. And I came across this and I shivered a little. I thought, pure heart. How am I going to stand up in front of a class and teach with a pure heart, knowing just a little sliver of my heart? Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all else. You know, I know that when I put a quarter in the Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time, that I'm giving, you know, I'm giving to something, but at the same time there's, oh, I did something good. So why am I doing it? You know, I, I would like to think it's because I'm giving to something good. So, um, maybe there's a variant of pure that, that I can look at. So I spent a few minutes on this and pulled up every translation that I could find and pure heart was in every single one of them. So let's focus on the word that I think is the most important, heart. If you look at Matthew 22, 37, I think it's pretty easy to see a correlation here between these words. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus wasn't just saying, love with your heart. Love with all your heart. So, what's, then Paul says here, a good conscience. Can anyone think of a different word for conscience? Look, look there at Matthew 22. With all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Conscience is another word for mind. So Jesus uses the word mind. Paul uses the word conscience. Once again, our Lord says, with all your mind. And then sincere faith. They didn't match up. As I started getting into this, I went, this makes a lot of sense. These all correlate, but they aren't in the same order. <laughs> but I think that's okay. Sincere faith. Our faith is directly connected to our souls. We are to love the Lord with all of our souls. So, you're building a doctrine around, around this and around God's teaching. So then, Paul tells Timothy, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. I read this in a commentary, and sometimes I read things in a commentary, and I try to reword it into my own words, and they're just too good. 
So I just say here, and I put quotes around it in my notes so that, so that I give them credit. Some people at Ephesus had turned away from the truth of God's word. They had followed their own ideas, and so they did not do what the Bible teaches. They failed to have that love, which comes from a clean heart, a good conscience, and real faith. They talked a lot, but did nothing of real value. Their teaching was just vain words that were of no use at all. Their teachings were just vain words. Once again, they veered out of the teachings of Christ and were getting into that category of heresy. That's no longer the love of God in words. Yeah. It's just this whole thing has been something I've been recently kind of convicted of. You know, we, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, anything we do, even giving our body to be burned, if it's not out of love, it means nothing, you know. And Amy Carmichael said something, going oh, with it, but um, a cup of sweet water won't spill bitterness no matter how severely it's jarred, you know, something like that. And so you think about it, you know, when we have. Um, adverse circumstances or trials, you know, um, if we have sinful responses to those, bitterness, anger, you know, whatever, that's not a person's spirit, it just kind of shows what we believe. And the key in all this is the heart, which goes back to, to what you're saying, just love and why Paul so emphasized how important love is. You know, there's no room for self-focus in there, no room for, for self-centeredness. You know, what drives us? What you know, is it love or is it so that we're respected or thought well of or, you know, all these things. It's just, it's just amazing how beautiful a picture this is and how, how God's design is for us. You know, it's not about us. It's about him and his glory and not ours. And um, this love in Christian living is the, the thing that binds it all together. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to miss a quote I had here. Going back to their teachings were just vain words. I introduced Pastor Tim to a preacher named Jay Vernon McGee. Get a chance to listen to Jay Vernon McGee. It sounds like he is out of a little white church sitting on a river down in West Virginia. Maybe 25 to 30 members in the church. He was a doctor of a very large church in Los Angeles. But he called this these vain words vain janglings <laughs> and it really paints a picture for you They're, they don't mean anything they're just jangling and then they were desiring this is the scripture again desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions these false teachers wanted to teach the law. False teachers wanted to teach the law. The law of Moses, meaning the first five book of, books of the Old Testament. And I already mentioned that. This is what they knew. And I understand you, you can kind of grasp that. If you grow up knowing the law, then I want to teach this. But the thing is, what was the purpose that they were standing up in front of churches? They wanted the attention they wanted to be noticed. Um, they wanted to be important in the eyes of their listeners. 
they did not understand the principles of the law they claimed to teach. What they taught with such confidence was an error. What they said was not correct, and it produced no good results. I remember Pastor Tim uses, used an illustration once, and he said, if I stand up before you and I tell you I'm going to have a 52-week sermon on the importance of recycling, he said, I expect you to come to me and talk to me and talk me out of it. And that's kind of what they were doing. They, they were using the law and then just making up stories and just making up, you know, there are sermons today that this is happening. You don't, okay, I want to do a sermon on fill in the blank. Then you build the scripture around it. That's one of the beauties of expository preaching is you preach verse 15 this week. And so next week is verse 16. And the week after that is going to be, going to be verse 17. You don't just build something around an idea you have. Then Paul said, now we know that the law is good if one uses it correctly. Today, you will hear seminaries rightly teach you are to preach the law and the gospel. I think one of the best illustrations of this is Ray Comfort. He'll Get someone on the side of the road and just talk to them, get to know them, name, and stuff like this. And he goes, so let me ask you, have you ever lied? Well, who hasn't lied? Yeah, I've, I've lied. Okay. He goes, have you ever taken anything? Oh, no. He goes, never. You, you never took some coins out of your mom's purse when you were a kid. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you stole something. He goes, have you ever lusted? Oh, yeah. You know, and he he lays out the law and points out the sin in their life. No, not one can say, "Well, yeah, I I never done that." So you can you're convicted by the law, and then you introduce the gospel. So, uh, yes. If I could just sort of make a reflection on the first section there, like as you're talking, it's interesting to think. You know, these folks are. You know, they're teaching God's word, and it even says they're doing so confidently, uh, and yet they're doing more harm than good because they're twisting the Bible. So don't assume that just because somebody's, you know, either teaching the Bible and doing so with, like, great boldness that they're necessarily, like, doing the work of God or advancing the Great Commission. I mean, they could if they're twisting the scriptures and teaching it not in line with, you know, how God intended it to be taught. That they could be doing a whole lot more harm than good. Uh, so I think, you know, this calls for a lot of discerning, uh, discernment in how we listen to sermons, how we evaluate teaching. You know, don't assume that just because somebody says open up your Bible and then proceeds to boldly teach the Bible that what they're saying is any good. Uh, you know, I think we could have to be far more discerning than that. I mentioned Jesse Duplantis earlier. You listen to Jesse Duplantis, and he can be very convincing. <laughs> because it's easy to listen to him, and he's bold, and he has these bold assertions. Joel Osteen beginning of every service you hold your Bible up this is my Bible and then he goes on with some vain jangling but he he, you know it's it's the um, you know it's that boldness that you have to be careful of so 
We need the law, and the law is good if it's used in the right way. These teachers that Timothy's going up against are not properly teaching the law. They're using it for their own reasoning and justification. The law is used to reveal sin in our lives. The law is used to reveal sin in our lives. Of course, an old dead guy, I quoted before Matthew Henry, has worded this better than I ever could. We must not, therefore, think to set it aside, but use it lawfully for the restraint of sin. We use the law to restrain the sin. Then Paul says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience, and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. The law is there to show us where we sin. The law is there to show us where we sin. We only have to go as far as Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not, exclamation point. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It would have been nice if Paul had spelled out some examples for us. Next, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. And I've always looked at that and I thought, it's a list of sins. And it is. That's what it is. It's not random. I think we all understand the Ten Commandments, that you have the first four were commands about, how, about our relationship with God. They're vertical. Five through ten are horizontal. It's our relationship with others. And what's it, what, what's number five? Honor your father and mother, and you will live long. What's the first one here? Don't strike your father and mother. And that doesn't mean just physically, although that's on the list. If you are disobedient, if you, you know, and I would add something here that's not my notes. There's no um, statute of limitations on that. If your mother is 79 years old, or if she's 69 years old, or if she's on her deathbed, you honor your father and mother. For murderers, thou shalt not murder. For the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, he is going through verses 5, or commandments 5 through 10, one by one. Now, he's using the worst case scenario for each one, and rightfully so. Because, it makes me nervous when he's sitting up here. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good thing. Um, but it, uh, he's, he's showing the worst case scenario. And so, uh, he, this is a list of, and I gave you four blanks there, fifth through the 10th petitions of the command, of the 10 commandments. This is a list of fifth through the 10th commandments. 
Um, and like I said, he picked the worst sins. Then he said, and whatever, he didn't leave any loopholes. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul didn't want Timothy or us to think that this was an exhaustive list. Much like a lawyer, he's tidying up those loose ends. And he clearly states that this is a list of examples and not a comprehensive list. It's a list of examples and not a comprehensive list. Then he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. There are things to learn from Paul. The next sentence is filled with instructions for us today. To call God a blessed God. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. He could have easily just said, in accordance with God. And it meant the same thing. Does God need to hear our praises? Does he need to hear us exalt him and lift him up? Of course not. He doesn't need it. God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself and his own perfections. If we look at a scale and compare what he's done for us, just in our salvation, just in our salvation, compared to our praises of him, we don't fall short. We aren't even on a scale. Yet, we still need to boldly proclaim that God is a blessed God. And next, to call the gospel a glorious gospel. To call the gospel a glorious gospel. Matthew Henry once again said, So much of the glory of God appears in the works of creation and providence, but much more in the gospel, where it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. God is a blessed God, and the gospel is a glorious gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to be reciting our confession of faith. There's a couple reasons we do that. Our Pastor encourages to memorize scripture. But this morning, as you speak what is written on the screen, think about the words, concentrate on them, and remember in Matthew 15, 28, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And then I said I was going to say something about pastors, and I want to hit this point because we're out of time. To be called to the ministry is a trust. The gospel was appointed to the apostle. To be called to be a minister or pastor has just a high calling. It is an office of power and trust. It is an office of power and trust. That's why in 1 Corinthians 4.1 we read, This is how one should regard us. Paul's talking about apostles and pastors as servants of God and stewards of the ministry of God. Paul wanted Timothy to fully grasp the undertaking he was going to have. That office is called a steward. Steward. You're given something and you're to hold it. And the charge that a pastor has 
is great. There's great power. There's things in that man's head that he's heard, seen, that no one, Bethany doesn't know about him because he has been called to hold that. And I'm not just holding him up. I'm holding every other Bible-believing pastor in Muncie, in Indiana, and the country today. And they're holding the great power and trust. And that is rightly preaching the Word of God and carrying that out. Does anyone have anything else? Yes, Carol. Yeah, and I, I'm thankful for Tim, too. It goes back to this whole doctrine. What is doctrine, you know, based on? What is, how does, uh, in the law, God sums up, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself. It comes back to love. And our greatest example of that is, of course, Christ, you know, and he emptied himself everything such as his deity, right? He he gave his life and even his very last words on the cross when every word is excruciating pain was to forgive his killers, to care for his mother with John and to assure the thief next to him would be in paradise with him. Like that is the ultimate example and who ultimately receives the glory and why, you know, with the people that err on legalism are completely missing the point. It's all about yeah, and I just think about how much God loves us to give us these instructions that we would call him a blessed God. And I think about like the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It is good for my soul to know how good God is and to thank God. Like it gives me peace. So it just, God loves us so much. And it's awesome that we can be a little bit like him. Not, not like him in a great way, but a little bit. If we follow what he has to say. I I taught Sunday school through I taught the Lord Prayer through that and I said we don't use hallowed as much as we should. But at the same time, we need to save that for special times. It's like the word awesome. People go, Oh, I hit that green light, just oh that's awesome. No, it wasn't. That was good. It was nice to hit a green light. But God God incarnate hung on a cross for our sins. That is awesome. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are a blessed God. We raise you up. We hold you up. We, we, um, everything we do should be done to your glory. And Father, we're thankful for, for you. We're thankful for your gospel. And, and Father, we're thankful for this lesson today. Father, we pray for the church service. We pray for Pastor Tim as he preaches. We pray for the worship. And, and Father, we pray for the fellowship. And may, may you be glorified and lifted high. And we concentrate on you and you alone. Father, we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. No, we see the